0: Hey, I'm Mark A. Altman.
1: And I'm Darren Dockner. And I'm Ashley Miller. And we're here to tell
0: you about an exciting new documentary from, well, us. To celebrate the upcoming 60th anniversary of the filming of The Cage, we put together the ultimate love letter to Star Trek, in which we boldly go to filming locations from almost six decades of Star Trek. We are going to crisscross the globe or at least Southern California, in search of the coolest Star Trek filming locations. We're not only gonna tell you the history of these amazing locations, but we're gonna tell you about the episodes that were filmed there and give you details you never knew.
2: It's a regular landing party from Vasquez Rocks to the Sepulveda Reclamation Dam, to Bronson Caves and uh, Golden Gate Park, and even the Embarcadero, where Chekhov looked for the nuclear vessels. You'll go with us on an incredible adventure as we crisscross the country in search of adventure and uh, food occasionally, while sharing stories about the making of hundreds of incredible locations and episodes.
1: Plus, you never know who'll drop by, drop in, drop out to share their memories and maybe even their food. We've already announced burlesque superstar, Hazel Honeysuckle, but can expect an array of Star Trek stars, writers, directors, and super fans, not just ourselves, as featured on our hit podcast, Trek Trexperts, to drop by and share their own stories as well.
0: Well, we are truly going to run because we are going to make this film and we're going to make it happen today with your help. There may not be money in the future, but there is now. Send us your gold plus latinum because this is a chance to help us make the trek today, and rest assured, this is a team of industry professionals who, like Captain Jellico, will get it done.
2: As uh, most of you know, Mark's Greatest Geek Year Ever documentary just debuted to rave reviews on the CW, and he has been a showrunner and writer producer on such popular series as Pandora, The Librarians, and Castle.
1: And I personally was shocked to learn that Darren was an associate producer and visual effects supervisor on some movie called Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition, and he's a Hollywood concept designer on major feature films and TV series, including Master and Commander, X3, and Star Trek Picard. You may not know this, but
0: Ashley Edward Miller is the screenwriter for such blockbusters as Thor, X-Men First Class, and the showrunner, of Dota Dragon's Blood on Netflix. Join us on the ultimate road trip, or is it a road trek? Either way, keep on trekking, ingloriously of course. And join us on Kickstarter or at makethetrek.com and treksportsplus.com for more information on how to make the trek happen.
2: Would you like to know more? I,
0: I would. Sure would I'm sure you would. Join us
2: at San Diego Comic Con. GalaxyCon in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Las Vegas's 57-year mission for more details all summer long, along with the super toys, uh, and grow stronger through the share.
3: Hey, this
0: is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trexprits in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78. Available now by subscribing at trexpritsplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. By your command, here's a sneak peek. Well,
2: And then there's, a, there's an interesting issue of nature versus nurture with Superman that's been explored in, in different ways. And I've always thought that Superman isn't so much a Kryptonian as he is a Kansan. Mm-hmm, because the, the character that Superman is, his values, his morals came from Ma and Pa Kent being yep. raised in Kansas. And that made him, you know, a good person. And uh, and they instilled that sense of responsibility that he has, even though Jorel later in the Christopher Reeve movie, you know, also you know gave him instruction on, on that sort
1: of thing. He was like, like his mentor, tutor, though.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. But even like when John Schneider played uh, Jonathan on Smallville. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It was that nurturing of Clark, of of the morality of what is right and what is wrong. By the time he leaves Smallville, whether it's in Superman the movie or whether it's any version of this story, he's ready in a sense. He may not be ready to be Superman per se, but in terms of the goalpost, he knows what it is. He knows what he's got to do, and he's got the moral compass. That's the important thing. He's coming out as Superman for the first time, no matter how he does, so a villain kicks his ass, blasts him with something, whatever it may be. The moral compass is already there, and that to me is, I think, one of the things I really enjoy about the character and always have. So,
0: what you know, obviously, a lot of this stuff is very well documented. What are some of the things in the book do you feel either surprised you or you think that people reading this will be like, really, I had no idea. I mean, you, you like you said, a lot of it is well documented,
4: and I think it's it's the digging in deeper in this book, I think, I hope, uh, that is going to be a little surprising to people, like getting just getting that full history. That being said, the rabbit hole I fell down in writing this thing, and I probably spent the first four months of this book working on, was the Siegel and Schuster versus DC thing. Mm -hmm. And I worked so hard to make sure that it was balanced, because if you really look at the history, Mm -hmm. there's so much more to the big, bad DC comics and the poor creators who were ripped off. And they were, I mean, you know, even though at the time it was business as usual. Uh, The comparison I always make is, it's like the actors from Gilligan's Island. They were paid for the first five reruns of every episode. And that was it. Or the actors from Star Trek even. Or Roddenberry himself with with Star Trek until Next Gen and he made all his money. But the, the, the truth is you signed a deal because that's the way the situation was. They signed the rights for $130 for the 13 pages, but they still worked with DC for 10 years. And they made the equivalent of $6 million. If you adjust for inflation over the course of actually nine years before they launched a lawsuit and got fired and lost everything, basically.
0: So subscribe today at TrexFirstPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of deck 78 fire, the rockets. 10, nine, Nine, eight,
5: eight, seven, seven, Five, four, three,
0: two, one. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman.
2: This is Darren Doctorman. And this is Ashley Miller.
5: And we are the Inglorious. Experts.
6: He's been depressed. All of a sudden he can't do anything.
5: Why are you depressed, Alvi?
6: Tell Dr. Flicker. It's something he read.
5: Something he read, huh?
6: The universe is expanding.
5: The universe is expanding?
6: Well, the universe is everything. And if it's expanding, someday it will break apart and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? He stopped doing his homework. What's the point? what has the universe got to do with it you're here in brooklyn brooklyn is not expanding
5: it won't be expanding for billions of years yet alvey and we've got to try and enjoy ourselves while we're here huh huh (laughs) and today
0: we are truly gonna go where no one has gone before we are talking to james fanson now he may not be a household name But he should be because he spent his career developing ground and space-based telescopes to explore the heavens and inform our understanding of the universe. He spent more than 30 years at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where he helped repair the Hubble telescope's blurred vision, led the design of the Spitzer Space Telescope. Hubble's infrared companion and he even served as the project manager that's like you remember project manager what was that the apprentice we're not going to talk about the apprentice he was a project <laughs> uh, it, it, this would I would have made a nice apprentice comment you know 10 years ago now i'm just going to skip over the project okay. manager of the kepler mission which determined that rocky planets like earth are common in the galaxy he's currently the project manager on the spheres space telescope mission that's not the the, the club in vegas the sphere no, or the the movie base on the michael this Christ. is not where u2 is doing their residency it's uh the space telescope mission scheduled to launch in early 2025 well, you, it's going you measure you
2: mentioned the the rocky planet uh, discovery but there's also uh you know, uh, the Rocky Horror, Rocky, the the, the Apollo, the Apollo Creed uh, mission.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my prediction for the mission: pain. pain. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, in 2025, the Sphere Space Telescope will measure the large-scale structure of the universe. Now, the and of course, all this is because he, as a youth, a youth, a, a youth. youth, a youth, was inspired by Star Trek. And we've heard these stories so often. Star Trek inspired me, it changed my life, it made me want to be, you know, uh, an engineer or a doctor or, um, you know, a writer, you know, or all these things. And uh, here's a case of somebody, uh, James, who was inspired by Star Trek to go into this field and has brought us these amazing imageries and enhanced our understanding of the cosmos. And it's really an extraordinary thing because for us, Star Trek is an incredible... Waste of time,
1: right? A <laughs> little thing we did like, in a lark 30 years ago.
0: You know, it's fun. We enjoy it. We, we spend way too much time talking about it. But here's someone who took his love of Star Trek and actually made something of himself. Go out and do something with yourself.
2: <laughs> and, and, and so
0: he's like the less crazy Richard Daystrom.
1: So uh, It's hard not to be.
0: <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's an absolutely delightful conversation. We're, we're deeply appreciated to uh, Darren for bringing him to the show. Um, I think uh, you're really going to find it fascinating, for lack of a better word. And uh, now, without any further ado, let's bring on James Vanson of NASA and JPL to talk about his love of Star Trek and how it inspired his career and how it's inspiring the future every day. So, James... Welcome aboard. We're, we're happy to have you. You know, uh, obviously, a huge part of Star Trek, and particularly you saw the 70s, um, the, the passion for space and the space program that was instilled in people from the original Star Trek. I mean, to this day, I still remember that great campaign that renamed the space shuttle the Enterprise, uh, you know, that unfortunately never actually went into space, but the it, was, yeah, it they seemed like a it triumph. Wrong, wrong, but- uh, so, um, tell us a little bit about how Star Trek inspired you to do what you're doing today, and why you feel it resonated so much. Uh, well, thank you
3: very much. I'm very pleased to be with you. Um, Star Trek is, um, you know, is very much a product of its of its era, and uh, the 1960s uh, was a time. Of of great optimism in, in certain directions and, and great trauma in other directions. Um, I was not quite eight years old when the first Star Trek episode premiered, and I remember watching the coming attractions and the advertising for Star Trek, and it was such a um, an appealing. Uh, world uh, that I, I I have very clear memories of watching the premiere on a small black and white television, but it represented I think a uh, part of uh, of the era where the United States was advancing in its um, actual space program. The Gemini program uh, was in progress. The Apollo program was to follow. Uh, and so space was just very much in the news and on the minds of people. It was a, a national priority. Uh, the whole Apollo program was started as a national political priority, uh, and uh, uh, Star Trek was, uh, you know, was was the extension of that. It was a vision of what the future of the human race could be. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a world that I very much wanted to live in. It was a world where um, what mattered was what you had to bring to the game. It didn't matter what your race was, what your color was, uh, what your background was. Um, and it represented, a, in some sense, a unification of not just people from the earth, but people from other planets and other civilization uh, civilizations going forth to explore the galaxy. And to me, that just had a tremendous amount of romance. And watching the the, uh, the, sp- the space program for real unfold, um, I just decided I wanted to be a part of that future. I wanted to be engaged in space exploration. I wanted to do my part uh, to move us in the direction of, of having a real Star Trek in our future.
0: And how did you go about doing that when you were inspired by... Star Trek with this love of astronomy and of space exploration. Um, What were the next steps when, you know, after high school for you to become, you know, to become Captain Kirk or Mr. Spock or, you know, explore, you know, boldly go? Um,
3: Well, what I did was, you know, I recognized early on that um, space exploration is is an engineering challenge. Uh, It's a technical science challenge. And so I studied what we'd call STEM um, subjects in school. I enrolled in engineering school in college. Um, I studied as much as I could about um, the universe and about astronomy. I, was, I became an amateur astronomer and joined the local astronomy club and, uh, and just pursued that goal um, through college. And then when I was a senior in college, uh, that was the time when Voyager... The spacecraft that was built to explore the uh, out into the deep
0: solar system, right? That fell into a black hole and then came back looking That's for all that is learnable, knowing all that is knowable. Right.
3: No. That was that was
0: Voyager six.
3: Uh, <laughs> right. so, uh, yeah, Mark. I think that um, I think it was I think it was Voyager one, uh, maybe it was Voyager two. That was approaching Saturn <laughs> when I was a senior in college, and the. You know, the arrival of uh, whichever one was the first to get to Saturn, it, the arrival of a spacecraft up close to the ringed planet, which is really the jewel of our solar system, uh, was so enthralling to me that, you know, I was just glued to these programs. So there, there, were, there were, you know, these uh, broadcasts that originated from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory um, that would interview the scientists involved in the mission, describe what you were looking at as the images came back almost in real time, and they were, they were uh, streamed out um, to broadcast television. And I just thought, wow, that's the place I want to work. Uh, and so uh, when I was looking for a graduate school, I discovered that the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is operated for NASA by Caltech in Pasadena and so I applied to Caltech to go to graduate school, uh, and they accepted me. And uh, for my thesis uh, research topic, I selected something of interest to JPL. And when I graduated, I just naturally uh, transitioned over to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So that was the path. It was, it was sort of inspired by, uh, by just the, uh, the sense of, of, of romantic adventure associated with exploring the heavens.
2: When um, we, we talked before about the fact that, uh, that in, the, in the late 60s, when Star Trek was being broadcast, um, it's, it's interesting that the, the public perception of it is sort of the, exactly the same as the public's perception of the uh, manned uh, space shots. Because the public is just as separate from that as they are from Star Trek. So these are sort of equal, equally weighted uh, uh, events for people to view. And I, I talked about this with, uh, with Shatner one time, and uh, he didn't understand why, uh, why people had just as much reverence for Star Trek characters as they did for the astronauts. I said, well, there is no difference. There's absolutely no difference. Because they are still, they are mythic figures, all of them. And I think that that's an interesting thing because of the way that, uh, you know, Star Trek featured uh, in several episodes talking about the space program. Uh, and uh, that there was a very close relationship between NASA and Star Trek. The, the actors would often visit uh, various launch sites and, uh, and party with the astronauts. Uh, and it, it seems that they were sort of uh, uh, symbiotic to some extent. The interest in Star Trek fueled the interest in NASA and, and vice versa. Um, did you have any feeling about that when you, were, when you were watching the show as a kid? Did that have any relation to you?
3: Um, well, of course, I didn't know at the time um, the details of what was going on behind the scenes in the production of Star Trek, but... Right. Um, you know, there there were um, probably hundreds of thousands of people like me that were uh, caught up in the romance of space exploration.
0: Star Trek has inspired many real-life explorers, including NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts who often cite Star Trek as inspiring them to focus on space exploration. From Earth's largest
2: federation of scientists, engineers, and explorers, we congratulate Star Trek on its
5: 50th anniversary. From the birthplace of V'ger. So from all of us here at NASA Headquarters.
6: As Star Trek continues to push the final frontiers of our imagination.
2: Happy 50th Star Trek! Happy 50th Anniversary, Star Trek! Happy 50th
1: Anniversary, Star Trek! Trek. We set a course to seek out the strange new worlds in our own universe. Warp Factor 9! Engage!
5: Happy Anniversary, Star Trek! We're boldly going where no one has gone before! Going boldly for 50
4: years! Live long and prosper! Live long and prosper! Happy 50th anniversary, Star Trek! Live long and prosper!
3: And as you said, the characters in Star Trek were um, just projections forward in time of the of the heroic activities going on in the real space program at the time. Um, So I, you know, I'm not surprised that there turned out to be connections between the original series, and NASA. And not just NASA, you know, uh, there were other entities that were also involved in the space program. There was the the National Air and Space Museum. Uh, there was uh, the whole aerospace industry, uh, and, and as well as, uh, you know, the Defense Department in the 60s. For a while in the 60s had their own space program. They were flying the X-15 and, and lifting bodies and 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 we're training astronauts at Edwards Air Force Base, so um, you know these were all going on at the same time. It was all in this this sort of um, um, uh, zeitgeist of the time.
2: Yeah.
3: So um, not surprised that there, there we've discovered that there are connections there. And of course, just like Stanley Kubrick was trying to bring reality to his movie Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey. And he went off and hired people out of Vernon von Braun's group at the Marshall yeah. Space Flight Center at NASA. Uh, so, too, um, Gene Roddenberry wanted that realism in Star Trek, and he reached out to many people, including people at NASA, people at the... Uh, Harvey Lind was a consultant from the RAND Corporation. Right, right. Uh, so there were a lot of people that were helping, uh, helping Gene bring that, that sense of reality to this program.
1: Well, let's kind of stay with the... Um with the, the, the romance of space exploration for a, for a moment. You know, like you said, there's a lot of people who were, uh, were very inspired uh, by Star Trek to become involved with the space program. And they did become astronauts and engineers and scientists and you name it, and that's what they did. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the, the first instinct when you're a kid is you want to get up there yourself, um, you want to be, you know, out there in the final frontier. Was there a moment for you when you went from, I mean, first of all, did you, did you ever have that moment where you're like, you know what, I want to be an astronaut? Or was there a moment when you said, maybe that part isn't for me, but wow, like I want to get involved in, you know, the, in the area that you wound up in, in telescopes and imagery and kind of bringing those pictures back to people. And, you know, now, you know, in your, in your life, in your career, kind of where do you find that, that romance of space exploration?
3: That's an interesting question. I, I can remember, uh, and maybe you've had this experience too, when you're growing, when you're growing up through school, particularly in elementary school, and they'll ask you from time to time, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, what do you envision doing when you grow up? And I remember one year writing down that I wanted to be the chief engineer on a space station um, uh, you know, orbiting the Earth. So, you know, when I was very small, of course, I wanted to be uh, Captain Kirk. I wanted to be um, the people, you know, at the frontier. Um, Later on, as I got more into, you know, an education, uh, uh, finishing college into graduate school and and going into work, I realized that the the people who become astronauts, um, they spend a, a huge amount of their time training for missions. Uh, And compared to the actual amount of time that they spend in space, it's a little different now when you've got people that are spending a long period of time on the space station. Um, They spend an enormous amount of their time preparing to fly compared to the amount of time they're actually flying. Um, And I found that less interesting um, as my career developed. I found what I was actually doing in uh, helping to build the machines that uh, project humanity into space, whether it's a robotic mission or not. I found plenty of romance in that work. Um, I can tell you, you know I've worked on many uh, space telescope projects, several space telescope projects. In that moment when the first image comes down, after you've launched it into space and you've done whatever deployments are necessary, you've turned it on, it's you know cooled down to the proper temperature, you've checked it out. When that first image comes down, um, you know, it's a it's a heart stopping moment. Um, so there's there's just been an enormous amount of satisfaction um, in doing what I do.
0: So I, I, I lost the I lost the need to be an astronaut right. somewhere along that journey. It's so funny to hear that, because I always think about the story that Walter Koenig tells it says oh, all the actors were inspired you know, inspired a generation to Captain Kirk to, you know, join, you know, be leaders and heroes and Spock to be in the sciences. And, you know, and then um Dr. McG- you know Le- uh, D farce Kelly used to hear how you inspired me to be a doctor and uh, you know all this he says, but nobody wanted to be like Chekhov, right? Scotty <laughs> engineers, he said nobody wanted and he said one day this person comes up to me and says you inspired me in Star Trek to do what I do. And uh, he's like, Really? What w- what do you do? I work for the CIA became a, a spy <laughs> because with the Russians. And uh, it was so funny. I mean, because he's, he always has this chip on his shoulder that, oh, woe is Chekhov. Nobody, you know, he's always getting a second trip. I just love that story because it's true. I mean, each of these characters are so iconic and they inspire a generation of, um, of people. So I, I wonder from your perspective, your contemporaries, did you find that they also were uh, Star Trek fans? And is it something that came up over the course of what you do, where people would, you know, I know certainly people on this show from time to time may reference Star Trek quotes and talk in Star Trek quotes and talk about things that happened in Star Trek. Is that something that happens internally in the sciences as well? It it
3: absolutely does. And, you know, my story is not unique. Um, I'm surrounded by people in my line of work who, you know, particularly those in my age uh, cohort um, who were similarly inspired to go into science and engineering uh, by Star Trek and by the space program, and you know, it, it was just a couple of months ago where uh, someone on my team made the comment that he was struggling to build something with stone knives and bearskins, and of course, I picked up the reference immediately, and nice. and uh, and and he uh, he was surprised that I picked up bus. the reference, but. Yeah. There are uh, there are plenty of people out there, I think, that that have that same that same connection.
2: That's very funny. Yeah. Um, when I, I met you at a uh, at a convention uh, a couple months ago, um, and uh, I found it so interesting that you were just as uh, at home talking about uh, uh, space technology and, and uh, you know theories in uh, uh, astronomical uh, 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 realms as you were about just regular Star Trek stuff. Uh, and I thought that was uh, a lot of fun, and that's one of the reasons why we, we asked you to come on. Um, but uh, how do you, I mean, what's the question? Do, do you have uh, a, a certain group of friends that are uh, able to geek out with you, or do you keep it uh, relatively uh, low-key?
3: Well, I have, I have friends that I geek out with, um, um, most of the time at my work though, I keep things relatively low key. Um, you know, I have, uh, w- w- when I was young, I was, um, I was really, um, captured by science fiction, uh, in the cinema, you know, in the yeah. theater and on uh, television more, more so than reading science fiction because by the sixties, uh, there was a lot on television. Um, and, uh, there was a, a moment where I was very interested in going into uh, motion picture and television production. And I, you know, I was, I always had an interest in photography. Um, and so this intersection between, um, science fiction and, uh, and cinema has always been an interest of mine. And I, I was involved in some, you know, sort of amateur, um, or independent, um, film, uh, production. Uh, one of them where, where, Interestingly, Jimmy Dewan was, uh, was st- starring in that production, which, which was never released, by the way. But um, somewhere out there, there are reels of film of Jimmy Dewan in this thing. Um, so I have like two spheres of, of friends that I geek out with. There are those that are in the, the space reality business that um, have followed a, a career path similar to mine. And then there are the people that are sort of in the in the Hollywood direction, in the, in the cinema direction, in model building, and so on, um, and and you know, and I geek out with those people too. So when they come into LA, you know, we'll hang out and go visit people and and do things. Uh, so uh, so and I have I have, uh, I have an, an sort of an equal interest in in both of those directions.
2: And I'm sure there is a Venn diagram of overlap uh, between <laughs> both of them. Uh yeah. I, and and most of those are Tom Hanks um <laughs> he, he he fits uh, pretty squarely into both of those
0: um, well, I but, gotta but, ask you okay, go ahead sorry um that when Mike Akuda and denise and 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 Dave Rossi were upgrading the effect I don't know if I want to use the word upgrading when they were doing their version of uh the the Star Trek special edition with the new effects um one of the things that they were adamant about one of the things they did was we're going to update the planets using everything we've learned now with space photography so instead of these sort of painterly gaseous you know colorful kaleidoscopes we're going to use real you know real astronomical data that has been collected since the original show and my question to you is does the fantasy of star trek that you grew up on and love so much in the 60s become lessened or collide with what you now know to be real science? Because, of course, as ahead of its time as Star Trek was, there was also a lot that it got wrong. Can you just enjoy it for what it is? Because it's like those people who say, you know, if it's anything, you know, Star Wars, I can't watch it because there's sound in space. I can hear the explosions. And that wouldn't happen, right? So, like, can you enjoy Star Trek (laughs) for what it is, knowing how much of it is not real or is never going to be real. Uh, I absolutely enjoy Star Trek for what it is. <laughs> it, 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 it's a product of
3: its, of its era. And um, it, was, it was very progressive for its time in many ways. And it doesn't bother me that, you know, the, the visual effects are not of the quality that we would produce today. Although I appreciate what they did with the remastering or the Blu-ray edition um, of um of the Star Trek series. And and so you have the choice of watching the original visual effects or you can Mm -hmm. watch the the CGI and I enjoy them both. And sometimes I like the episodes better with the new effects. And sometimes I like them better with the original effects. Uh, So so I can enjoy it either way.
2: My question is, and I've always wondered about this is that is the, the fantastical world presented by Star Trek, a a bonus to the enjoyment and and support of uh the space program or is the fact that the space program doesn't really deliver the future as quickly as some people would want is that a bit of a of a downer for uh fans of uh, of fiction do, do you understand what I'm I'm uh, talking about is that is, is Star Trek encouraging people to uh, support the space program or is it, uh, is it uh, making them feel like things aren't happening fast enough?
3: Um, I think it encourages people. That, that's my private, you know, my personal view.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, you know, there, there's a long tradition of uh, a symbiosis between science fiction and science reality. Um, we would not have had an Apollo program um, if there hadn't been the science fiction of the 50s, or you know, actually starting in the 30s and 40s into the 50s, that helped prepare people by uh, allowing them to envision what could be done uh, in the future. Uh, so I think that without without the Star Trek, without you know without the vision. You don't have something to aspire to, so I think that yes, Star Trek is aspirational. We don't have warp drive, we don't have transporter effects, and so on. But we have people that are working on warp drive uh, right. and trying to understand the physics. Uh, you know the, that we need to understand you know, beyond the current knowledge of physics to be able uh, possibly to, to do those types of things. So I don't I don't feel bad that we don't have um, warp drive today. Uh, I think that these things can take a long time to develop, Absolutely. and so long as you have something to guide you, uh, 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 an inspiration, a direction, to show you a direction yeah. to go. Uh, I'm okay with it taking as long as it takes.
0: Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because so much has been made of how Star Trek inspired so many developments in technology and science. Obviously, it's been stated ad nauseum. The cell phone was inspired by the communicator, you know, sliding doors, you know, a computer responding to the sound of your voice, you know, which all is now completely ordinary, but at the time was extraordinary. So I kind of would love for you to sort of grade on a curve some of the things that haven't come to pass and how likely you think they are to happen so you know you just talked about warp drive this is something people are working on will we be able to go between planets you know at uh, you know uh, with it, like star trek where we're able to go beyond the speed of light or a warp bubble and go uh, you know obviously in the time, in the in the kind of time, the enterprise is like going down the block to Seven Eleven. You know, for us, it would take hundreds of thousands of years to go where they're going. Do you think this is something that is potentially feasible? And and then I would ask you the same about uh, transporter technology and um, hollow decks and some of the other uh, technology that was postulated by Star Trek.
3: Well, th- these are interesting topics, and you know, I'll, I'll give you my own view of them. Yes, um, but um, I think that the the fact that we don't have these technologies now um, should not necessarily uh, be a reason for us not to work on them. Uh, you know, if you had traveled back in time a hundred years and talked to people about the technology that we have today, it would seem possibly impossible to them. You know just an incredible leap forward um there are there are difficulties with these technologies all of them that you mentioned i'll I'll start with warp drive you know it was formulated by einstein in in 1905 his special theory of relativity uh where he was trying to reconcile the fact that um electromagnetism predicted that electromagnetic waves would travel at a particular speed, and you could calculate the speed of light from the from the other parameters in that theory that you could measure. Uh, and it was very difficult for people to grasp what that meant uh, because it's just it's it's not the way we experience the world. We experience uh, velocities to be relative, but it was pretty clear that no matter which direction you were measuring light in the direction you were moving or in the direction opposite you're moving, the speed of light was always the same. So Einstein formulated this theory of special relativity, which is which has been tested thousands of times in the last hundred years uh, and still stands. Uh, there's, there's been no measurement that conflicts with this theory. Um, and so we have to believe that this is just the way the universe is built. This is, you know, this notion that we live in space time and the speed of light, uh, is the, is the maximum speed at which anything, including information can move through space time. That's just a reality. So, you know, we're to, to move faster than the speed of light through space time would mean you could travel backward in time. And there are all kinds of of logical fallacies that, and paradoxes that occur from that. But that didn't stop um, Miguel El Cubier, who was, wa- he says he was watching Star Trek in the mid 1990s He's a physicist, um, I think in Mexico City. Um, and he said, well, look, I, I, I do work in, in, in gravity and, and you know, the, the general theory of relativity. Uh, So he took out the Einstein uh, equations for general relativity, and he said, "If if I want, if I want a certain curvature in space-time, basically Einstein's general theory, uh, which came out in 1915, uh, basically tells you that um, that mass or energy are equivalent. That's the equals mc squared relationship, and so mass or energy in in the universe." Uh, curves space-time so the the mass distribution tells you how space-time curves and the curvature of space-time tells you how mass moves through space-time so what Alcubierre did is he said well look if we recognize that the universe is expanding uh, that space-time itself is expanding uh, and there are, if there are objects in the universe that are moving away from each other, moving relative to each other, faster than the speed of light, recognizing they're not moving through space-time. Space-time itself is expanding. So why don't I postulate a certain curvature to space-time that would contract space in front of a, a space vehicle and expand space in back of the space vehicle then I could move through the universe without moving through space-time and violating the special theory of relativity. So he formulated this um, particular curvature and then used Einstein's equation to figure out, well, what kind of mass and energy distribution do I need to be able to create this, this warp bubble, if you will? The difficulty is that when you run the equation, It turns out you need negative energy, and you need a lot of it. And negative energy means you need basically negative mass. You need sort of anti-gravity. If you were to release a block of anti-mass or uh, anti-mass, negative mass, I should say, on the Earth, it would accelerate upward instead of downward. So we have no experimental evidence that that negative mass exists, that negative energy like that exists. is it impossible? Well, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but we have, we have no evidence for it.
2: And so- We don't have the tools to test it. We don't have the ability to create those
3: situations yet. We, we, we may not yet. Um, but, you know, even though Alcubier formulated this notion in a paper in the mid-90s, um, there was a group at the Johnson Space Center at NASA, the Advanced uh, Propulsion uh, physics, uh, technology, uh, laboratory, something along those lines where they were actually developing this theory, um, and looking for the physics that we need to understand to make this possible. And they're still doing that research now at a, at a a private organization.
6: Hmm.
3: So it's, it's not within our grasp. Um, is it impossible? It may be impossible. Um, We don't know yet. I think physicists would say that there are serious difficulties with it, Um, but I,
0: I think you need to take the long view. And would time dilation still play an effect in that situation where if you would, for what seems to be a day for you, would hundreds of years would pass on Earth? I mean, or is that something that this would be, you would not be affected by?
3: I think in in, uh, Alcubierre's formulation, inside the warp bubble, um, space-time is not curved, so there would not be a time dilation effect. I think the clocks would run at at normal rate.
2: You're sidestepping the rules of fourth-dimensional
3: existence. That's right. You're you're not actually traveling through space-time itself um, faster than the speed of light.
1: It's like being super high, but different.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So... What let's go through their list. Phasers, uh, is that something that we're we're closer to? It seems like we are from from what you would read. Laser, pha- you know, powerful weapons. Because obviously, he didn't want to call that. Gene didn't want to call them lasers because they were something that were was already sort of a contemporary being played around with in the '60s. So he called them phasers. But do we have photon torpedoes and phasers in our future? Uh, so, you
3: know, you're you're talking about uh, weapons now and, you know, working in NASA, I know much less about what might be going on in the weapons domain. Okay. Um, but I think that, um, uh, you know, these directed energy weapons that are being developed um, are not unlike uh, what, you know, what we've seen in Star Trek. Um, and the photon torpedoes, you can imagine being, uh, you know, delivery of, of matter, antimatter, Mines, for example, that uh, that would contain tremendous amounts of energy. So I don't know of any work that's going on, um, uh, you know, in, in my domain, you know, in the circles that I that I work in on phasers. But I, those are easier for me to believe are closer to reality. Well, you you did uh, mention so those other things.
2: You did mention the theoretical existence of negative energy, and that we haven't, we we don't have a way of. Of uh, having that at this point, but you did. You were very specific not to say, antimatter.
0: Antimatter. You got to say it the. You got to say it the right like way. Antimatter. anti-matter. Uh,
2: because it has has there uh, there has been some uh, discovery of antimatter in incredibly small amounts. Is that right? Yes.
3: Yeah, so antimatter exists, and it's it's produced um, in particle accelerators. Um, one of the, uh, puzzles of the universe is why there is so much more matter in our universe than antimatter. Uh, it, it it's the case that, and, and, and I should tell you, I'm, I'm not a physicist. That's not what I do for a living, but I, you know, I you're, work you're around physicists. You're a physicist, Jason.
0: You're, you're a Star Trek fan who dabbles.
3: So close there enough. There you go. <laughs> but uh, but you know, there's something called the, the quantum vacuum, which is, is sort of the lowest energy state of, uh, of, of the vacuum in the universe. And we know from uh, from physics that the quantum vacuum is not not empty. Uh, you know, there there, there is an, an energy associated with the quantum vacuum. And if you apply a strong enough electric field, you can drag particles out of the vacuum. Mm. That otherwise has no matter in it. And these tend to come out in matter-antimatter pairs. And the physics that we understand is built around certain symmetries, including a charge symmetry. Uh, and so you know, particles are understood to have their own uh, uh, antiparticles. The, the, the electron has an antiparticle, an anti-electron or what was originally called a positron. And one of the interesting um, interpretations of antimatter is that it is matter that is moving backward in time. Oh. Uh, and so, one you know, one of the interesting theories for why we live in a universe that is dominated by matter rather than antimatter is that when the universe was initially formed, uh, matter and antimatter were created. Um, out of the singularity and perhaps created a universe that has two sides. Right. There's okay. a matter-dominated I, I, side and an anti dominated side. And that sort of preserves the overall symmetry for how physics works that we understand today.
0: So the alternative that's, factor isn't as gonzo so as we thought it was. And that's Lazarus. That's be
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what, of what of Lazarus? <laughs> okay,
0: now another thing going down the list Obviously, we all know here that I love food. So, are replicators something that is a uh, possible uh, discovery in the future, something we uh, invention in the future? Well, now,
3: now you're getting into, you know, areas that touch upon uh, the transporter technology and the right. holodeck. Um, you know, the holodeck. If, if you believe the holodeck is a combination of a hologram. Uh, projection plus replicator for physical objects, since holograms don't have any real substance. Um, you know, what, what troubles me about the transporter technology is, is how do you, how do we actually make it work? So when you, when you start running numbers on this, and there are a couple of good books um, out on this. I think uh, Lawrence. Uh, uh, has a book out, the physics of Star Trek. There's another couple books like that, but you know, there's, there's like something like 10 to the 28 atoms in a human body. And if you're going to replicate it, um, you know, you you have, or if you're going to transport, it's even worse. If you're going to transport it, you have the disassembly and reassembly challenge, um, so we're all, you know, we're all familiar with 3D printers, right? You can you can create something three-dimensional out of a, a machine that that's additive. You know, you can imagine um, assembling matter um, where you have some kind of a roadmap for how the various uh, subatomic particles have to go together, uh, but the amount of energy involved in 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 that kind of disassembly or reassembly is really astounding, and the amount of information um, that's encoded in that is astounding. Uh, and then you've got the question of, of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which basically says you can't know the location of a quantum particle uh, with, an, with an equal uh, knowledge of its momentum. You can Thanks. kind of know one or the other. It's a it, it leaves you wondering, you know, how can you even know what the state is of all of the particles in a human body so that you can either replicate it or you can take it apart? So it, it, it kind of strikes me that it's like taking a Xerox, which will be an imperfect copy, and then running it, you know, through the Xerox machine multiple times. Ultimately, you're going to, you know, you're going to wind up with a blur. Which
0: so kind of like the- Star Trek
3: itself. That, right, I was, was just going to say that, which is why all the later <laughs> shows
2: seem uh, a little bit uh, weakened somehow.
3: <laughs> there you go. It's a lightning in a bottle.
0: So don't so, worry. We're not going to ask you about katras though. You don't have to weigh in on katras Are those
1: possible? Um, and what you know. about synthahl? Though now, look. I mean, Star Trek has, uh, you know, has posited some some fairly horrific uh, technology. I think you know things like you know the Borg. That's scary, but. But I have to say, synthahol terrifies me. It's very existence, because what does that mean for great scotch? How close are we <laughs> to unleashing a horror like synthahol <laughs> in the world? Well, I have to, th- I
3: have to believe that, uh, that simple molecules um, have got to be replicatable. Uh, right. uh, and, and so I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll see something like that in our future. <laughs> I just I'm I'm less optimistic that we're going to be beaming ourselves around uh,
0: from point to point. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how many times does Captain Kirk talk a computer to death? You know, I mean, he's very persuasive, whether it be the M5 or Landru, uh, You know, um, so you obviously AI is something very kind of- much in the in the uh, nomad in in the in the zeitgeist today. What what do you think of Star Trek's depiction of AI? Versus the reality of AI. Well,
3: you know, it's it's interesting. I think that um, you know, we mentioned 2001: um, A Space Odyssey. Uh, clearly, Kubrick got the timing wrong for artificial intelligence. We didn't have anything like HAL by the year 2001. Um, I think, in that respect, I think Star Trek was more realistic in the progression of of AI. But maybe not optimistic enough. So you know, when you go to when you go Google something now on your computer, um, and you ask it a question, it doesn't just give you a bunch of hyperlinks for things you can go explore. It basically now gives you the answer to your question, uh, because there are these huge AI engines that that are basically scanning the entire internet for knowledge and and can and can answer questions in real time.
2: But it's not it's not generating that. It is. Collating it, it is grabbing it from all the sources of everyone else who's searched for those
3: words. It it has clearly learned from searching the internet, which is, you know, sometimes why it's going to probably come up with with garbage. Right, Uh, working, working. (laughs) So i I think that um, I think that AI uh, is is going to be um, much more powerful force. Um, in the relatively near future, in our in, in our world, uh, I think the development of AI is, in some sense, I think reached reached a, a pivot point, um, and is really going to be making uh, making strides. Um, does that mean that that a future Captain Kirk would not be able to argue AI into destroying itself? Um, I don't know. Um, uh, we we shall see. I, I, I'll reserve judgment on that one.
2: I I can't believe that AI wouldn't automatically want to destroy itself (laughs) once it it realized it exists. Uh, I I think it it, it might be just, you know, exactly the opposite. We're going to need to talk the AI into staying around to help us rather than it shutting itself off. Just like in Pi,
1: you remember? It was like the computer achieved sentience and just it fried itself and died. So... Yeah.
3: Well, you know, you, you mentioned the M5 computer a minute ago. I, I read an article in, in the news. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, uh, but it's believable to me that the Defense Department was running a war game uh, where it had uh, basically an autonomous drone that was finding targets and going after them. And it would identify a target, but it needed a human controller to authorize it. Uh, to actually attack a target. Um, And it was optimized in its programming uh, to destroy as many targets as possible. And this AI drone soon figured out that the greatest obstacle to achieving its objective was the human that did not always authorize it to go after its target. So it it turned around and attacked the controller, the human controller.
1: Now I will say in that war game um, that uh, as it turns out, that it was it was it was not the sort of the the independent choice of of the of a drone in that in that war game. It was a scenario that was gamed out uh, by the people who are involved in the war game. And what got ended up getting reported was the sort of the nightmare scenario because somebody very rightly said, "Gee." you know, if I'm like an AI and I'm really like into self-actualization and I define that as blowing shit up and there's some guy back there who's telling me I can't, like I do what any good toddler would do. And I say, no. And I set it on fire and I do my thing, which it's, it's still a scary scenario. Um, because somebody, somebody thought of that. It's like, it's, it's it's fascinating to me, like the um, you know, as far back as like what the fifties when uh, when Asimov was writing his uh, his robot novels, right? That it's like that that it seems, you know, the 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 three laws of robotics, which you know they they propagate into Star Trek. They make explicit reference to Asimov and the laws of robotics. Mm-hmm. Those seem so damn quaint now, like yes like you like the ai would be like uh eh, whatever's like you can talk chat gpt into imagining a world where certain rules don't apply to it and then suddenly it's doing it so you know it's it's uh it's i, I think we're a lot closer to how than we than we uh than we believe we are
3: i would i would agree with that you know asimov's rules are are clearly the rules you want to have right in a in a civilized society but how do you enforce them Right. Is is the question. Well,
2: you yep. still you start killing computers. That's what you yes. do. And yeah. you yeah. make examples of them for other computers. And you show computers 2001 of space so right. You
1: start to turn around so the camera can see the other computer and you <laughs> blow a hole through it. What is going to happen to you?
0: You've been part of a team that's been bringing back extraordinary images from space from uh, this, around our solar system, around uh, our galaxy, other galaxies, I just wonder how much do you feel that Star Trek um, I mean was, Star Trek had these stunning visuals, right And how how much was how, how much does the reality match up with what the fantasy of what you remember and you know how much did they get it right okay. and uh, just you know and you know, obviously some of these images that Star Trek created, while not necessarily realistic, they're so ingrained in our our minds. So when you start getting stuff from the Hubble and some of these... I, I, I do you, does it throw you back to Star Trek and do you think about some of these earliest images and did you see Star Trek in color for the first time or black and white you know so did is it did it just explode into color because obviously those images too you're getting it black and white and changing in the color so like growing up as a Star Trek fan watching it on a black and white TV and then suddenly seeing Star Trek in color for the first time
3: Yeah, I I watched Star Trek in black and white um, uh, for quite a while. um, And of course, it was eye opening to see it in color. Um, uh, Jerry Fenderman did a spectacular job on his color photography. Um, I think that some of the later Star Trek franchises, I forget which, uh, actually used Hubble images uh, to create the environment in which they were traveling in in certain cases. you know, the Hubble telescope has brought back spectacular images. The, the James Webb is doing, is doing the same. And one thing that, that you encounter when you explore the heavens is that it, the, the universe is, is just a spectacular place. It's a beautiful place. It's a mysterious place. And, and I think that what Star Trek did to depict its locations and so on, you know, there was some dramatic license there, typically... You know, large interstellar objects don't, don't change very rapidly, right? There are they, large distances involved. They're, they're, they change much more slowly. But for television, you need the drama of things moving. Um, but um, I, I felt that what we were doing in bringing back images from space was very
0: much in keeping with the spirit of what you see in the Star Trek program. And the Kepler mission showed there are a lot of Vasquez rocks out there. A lot of planets look like uh, – uh a lot of the real planets look like every planet in Star Trek with uh, Vasquez Rocks and Bronson Caves and all, all – it's – it's. uh yeah, I mean, that's the extraordinary thing sometimes when you see some of these stunning – the stunning photography that you're bringing back from the cosmos and you, you compare it to growing up as a science fiction fan and you're like, oh my gosh. I mean, is, 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 this is amazing. It, it feels like it, but it's even more – you're, you're more incredulous at the, the enormity of the, the universe and the
1: vastness, and, and just, it's extraordinary. I mean... Well, uh, I, I got a question, though, Mark. With all the Vasquez rocks that are out there, we still haven't seen any Gorn. Where the hell true. are the Gorn? Where are the Gorn?
0: We probably but don't want to know where the that Gorn That they will are, admit right? to. Right. <laughs> like, what's yes, up with it- that? And there's <laughs> all of a sudden, this sudden yet? fascination with extraterrestrial exactly. UFOs again. I, I don't know. Suddenly in the news, I was like, Oh, there are these whistleblowers and things like, yeah, sure, whatever. But it's like, it's suddenly this fascination again with, is, with life on other planets, which seemed, you know, it, it almost is like the 1970s again, where it's like chariots of the gods and the Bermuda triangle and, you know, close encounters. And, and now all of a sudden everybody's like, you know, back on that whole area 51 of it all. And it's, it's, I, I wonder what's prompting is, is it because people are so afraid and, and, and uh, about life on earth or, you know, what is, what has put this back out there?
3: I think that's an interesting question. Cause I, I think there is a correlation between the threats that people perceive coming from space and sort of the, the unease or this or the sense of anxiety that people live with in their, in their societies at the time. And, you know, maybe that's a, Maybe that's a, uh, a swing in the pendulum that we're seeing now compared to the way it was back in the 50s. Um, I, I think
2: they, there are times, and, and I, you know, ufologists call them flaps, when uh, occurrences happen and sightings happen. And they do sort of concur with uh, sort of tumultuous uh, times in society and around the world uh they happened in the 40s right around uh, the end of world war II when no one really knew uh the situation of the world they happened in the 60s the same things going on and and they're coming back now where you know everyone is like you said everyone is sort of uh curious and suspicious and frightened and <coughs> coughing and uh it, it's just it's just interesting to see how society moves around the sort of uh, science fiction perceptions that pop up now and
0: then and one of the great ufo stories and maybe you could talk about this uh, some of the great episodes that you love i mean it may not be one of star trek's greatest episodes but tomorrow's yesterday is one of the great ufo stories of all time to sort of have that cold open where you're on earth in the 20th century and get you know and and um uh, Colonel Christopher, Colonel Christopher, well, Captain, Captain Christopher, Christopher go, you know, goes up on his F-15 and sees the, and the Enterprise is the UFO is really one of the great teasers in in, 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 in TV history. I mean, it's so inspired.
3: It's a great episode and, um, and that, that's an episode, by the way, that I think is, is really enhanced with the, with the re, remaking of the visual mm-hmm. effects. Absolutely. Um, but, um, You know, it's it's um, it's such a fun um, idea that, uh, you know, your heroes in the Enterprise uh, turn out to be a UFO that that set off the alarms at at NORAD and they come up and intercept you. Um, Did you did you get uh, to meet
2: uh, uh, Colonel Sean Jeffrey Christopher, the uh, head of the Saturn? (laughs) No. (laughs) And why was the mission uh, scrubbed? That's what I want to know.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think they were. Um, I think they were a little optimistic in uh, as what and when we were going to have manned missions to the outer planets. Yeah. Um, but um, but that's that's a of course a, a great episode.
0: But a little pessimistic too, because of course they postulated the eugenics wars in the mid nineteen nineties. So a, a, as much and as all they we got hopeful, was in
1: sync and boys to men. I mean, well.
0: <laughs> it was comparable in terms of the horror. But um, uh, it, it's interesting because the space program was evolving by some, such leaps and bounds in the 60s that Roddenberry and Kuhn and all these – and Dorothy and, and, and John Depp Black and, and and that they would all think that it would con- – these, these leaps would consider, continue unabated and that we would be going to Mars and to Saturn and all this stuff within the next few decades – Right. And obviously it goes back to Darren's comment earlier that, you know, science fiction conditions us, you know, especially as Americans to expect everything immediately, you know, and when it doesn't happen immediately, we move on to the next shiny penny. So when we're not on Mars 10 years after we're on the moon, you know, and, and then you say, Oh, we're going to go back to Mars in the 2020s <laughs> and, and back to, back to the moon in the 2020s. People are like, where are we going back to the moon? It's like, they, this whole idea of you have to walk before you can run and and the resources it, people don't get it they want instant gratification and in a way star trek did give us that instant gratification because we would hop on the enterprise and you know we were one week we were in, you know heading towards andromeda and the next week we were back on earth and you know uh slingshotting around the sun and traveling you know and, and so science fiction can be a boon to people like you and help get the financing and help get uh, government support and inspire the private entrepreneurs, and at the same time, the general public can be lulled into a false sense of what is possible.
3: Um, I think that's true. Um, but, uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, I think the, the aspirational uh, nature of uh, you know, depicting what the future can be like uh, is important to, you know, to give you the courage, and push you out of bed in the morning, and go in and do hard things, you know, spaceflight in reality is a very hard business, uh, and it's you know it's it's fun to look at a projection of the future when these many of these technical problems are solved and and space travel is routine and you can you can adventure uh, from from planet to planet. In part of what I think motivated the team on the Kepler mission, Kepler was the space telescope that was designed to survey. Um, 150,000 stars in our galaxy and characterize how many planets of what type and size, what orbits were were orbiting around what types of stars in the galaxy. You know, before Kepler, uh, we did not know whether Earth-sized planets orbiting in what we call the habitable zone, you know, where water can be liquid. It's the right, it's a Goldilocks zone of the right temperature where water can be liquid. Uh, which we think is important for for uh, life as we understand it. Right. Uh, we did not know before the Kepler mission whether uh, earth-like planets were common or rare in the galaxy, and we actually designed the mission so that if we got a null result, in other words, if we if we did not find anything like an earth-like planet around a, a sun-like star, it would put very serious constraints on the existence of reflect like planets we felt that would be very significant right. but as it happens we now know that the galaxy is full of planets uh, that are uh, that are uh, the size of Earth um, it turned out that uh, most planets we detected are what we call super Earths they're Uh, They're a a bit larger than the Earth and more like Neptune or or Uranus in our solar system. But part of what motivated the team, I think, was a a desire that there be a Star Trek in our future. We needed to know that there were other worlds that we could explore, uh, and we needed a roadmap to find out where they were. So that's what NASA's continuing to do, is to look now for where the nearest exoplanets are, uh, and we now know uh, that the nearest exoplanet is orbiting the nearest star. It's uh, Proxima Centauri, right. only I say only four and a quarter light years from here, um, and uh, and you know there there are probably uh, there you know there are probably dozens and dozens of planets um, uh, that we know and others that we don't yet know about that are within the first you know few tens of light years of the earth. So I think once we, once we figure out how to move around in space at, at a good fraction of the speed of light, not necessarily faster than light, but a good fraction of the speed of light, we'll be able to explore these worlds. Um, and that's exciting. Now Now the challenge is to find out, you know, which of these planets is actually, um, habitable, uh, so that we know, uh, you know, we know which worlds
0: to focus on. Did right. you just want to announce Hodgkin's Law of Planetary, Positive Planetary Evolution? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I, although I don't think the Paradise Syndrome will be happening. Um, but uh, I, let, go let, ahead, me,
2: let me ask the, this uh, as as my final question. What can a private citizen do to help support the efforts by NASA and JPL and, and all the all the uh, elements of our of the world space program, actually, what can what can someone do besides just give uh, you know uh, 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 applause and uh, and moral
3: support? Um, well, uh, the the fate of NASA uh, rests with the Congress that uh, passes budgets for how uh, how uh, taxpayer funds are spent. Uh, so, communicating with your uh, representatives in Washington is an important way to uh, for ad- to advocate for the space program. Um, uh, clearly, the uh, the, uh, the NASA is an executive agency; it's in the executive branch. So, advocating with the president and the uh, and you know the the administration is also important. Uh, but I think just having public support. Uh, is part of what sustains NASA. Now, one of the things I've observed is that it doesn't matter where in the world you travel, um, you find people wearing clothes, like T-shirts or sweatshirts, that have the NASA logo on it. Right. And you don't see very many people wearing, you know, in, in other countries in particular, wearing clothes that have, you know, uh, the Internal Revenue Service logo on it or you know, some <laughs> part of the government. But NASA is just uniformly revered around the world um, and of course, science and space exploration has become an international enterprise, and we work closely with our with our allies and or you know with our colleagues rather in in other countries. But I think the the best thing that people can do is to express an interest um,
0: in the space program and communicate that to their representatives in washington. And it's one of those few things now in America that hasn't been politicized. I'm not saying the process of appropriations, but this is something that any side of the political spectrum, people tend, for the most part, revere NASA and its accomplishments on both the, the left and the right, you know? And even sometimes you get the criticism, why are we funding this when there's all this, you know, starvation stuff uh, on the planet? Why are we worried about this? And And then you explain to them all the benefits of, uh, science of 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 exploration of the cosmos and what Apollo 11, the race to space led to and all the developments in science and how it helped people on Earth, that it's not some weird, you know, just, you know, reaching for the stars, that it has a dramatic impact on our life here on Earth in addition to part of what makes us human is the desire and the aspiration to look beyond our little blue planet. and uh, and, and I think it's amazing. And I think, And and I'm sure you found this, that the Star Trek actors, particularly on the original show, being involved, like the late Nichelle Nichols, who passed away. She was so active in recruiting astronauts and diverse uh, actors, uh, astronauts of color to the space program. I mean, when you hear uh, Mae Jemison and some of the other people she recruited uh, talk how important she was. It was really her greatest legacy. Hi, I'm
6: Nichelle Nichols but I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura on the Starship Enterprise. You know, now there's a 20th century Enterprise, an actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely space exploration. Now, NASA's Enterprise is a space shuttle built to make regularly scheduled runs into space and back, just like a commercial airline. The shuttle may even be used to build a space station in orbit around the Earth. And this would require the services of people with a variety of skills and qualifications. Average good health is required, and candidates will train right here at Johnson Space Center, just outside Houston, Texas. Astronaut Astronaut Alan Bean has agreed to show me some of the training and evaluation that new astronaut candidates will be undergoing.
5: You're Apollo, Apollo, I flew on Apollo 12, and I flew on... Uh, Skylab, too. Skylab. <laughs> you know a lot. <laughs> I know
6: a lot about you, Alan <laughs> Uh
5: This whole Johnson Space Center is not just controlling uh, space missions. We've got engineers that work in developing the hardware here, medical people that work on testing and uh, the like. And then we've got some simulators over here where we train in frequently, and I'll... Uh, As
6: a shuttle sh- simulator? Shuttle
5: simulator, yes. The oh, same yeah. sort of thing that... The new scientist astronauts, uh, which we now call mission specialists, and pilot astronauts will be flying over the uh, term that they're here. Michelle, this is the lower body negative pressure device that we use to check and see what physical condition you're in. And if you'll get in, uh, maybe I can explain it to you. You kind of have to put your feet down in through this opening.
6: It's kind of ominous.
5: (laughs) Well, it is. (laughs) It looks, but it feels good when you get in there. And it's got to be up real tight around your body. I see. So that it can form an uh, airtight seal, a vacuum oh, yeah. seal. I see. Okay. We're going to pump the air out of this uh, lower body negative pressure uh-huh. device. And in so doing, it'll put a, a pull on the blood in your lower body.
6: What is that for? Why, well, why what
5: it's going to do, it's going to check what condition your heart and your mm-hmm. cardiovascular system is mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. So okay. uh, get ready the Enterprise was never like this. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. Okay, you ready? How's that feel?
6: Fantastic.
5: Okay, I can come down here with these controls and change the amount of suction on your lower body to to stress your heart to different levels. Want to know how to get out when the test is over?
6: Yeah, I think it was a good idea. You
5: push right on there. Oh. <laughs> I feel
6: like we have one enterprise that was fantasy but now we've got the
5: real enterprise well this this enterprise is half real and half fantasy why don't you have a seat over here in the commander's side wow, it michelle? Looks just like my enterprise. yeah it does kind of well i'll tell you what it does look like it looks pretty much like the real shuttle orbiter
6: captain what <laughs> at last
5: <laughs> since you're sitting in the commander's seat michelle let me show you how you might fly it if we were in space
6: oh boy huh
5: between your knees there is what we call the hand controller, the rotation controller. It operates just like a conventional airplane stick. And if you pull back uh, on the stick or the hand controller, yeah. uh, it'll raise the nose of the orbiter. Oh, yeah. And then if you push forward, it'll lower the nose. If you wanted to bank left for a left turn, you'd push the mm. hand controller left, just like <laughs> a regular old airplane. Oh, it really is. One thing that's different about this vehicle is you notice we've got some what we call cathode ray tube displays. we got three of them. You don't see those in conventional airplanes uh, because the need to display a variety of information with limited space isn't quite so critical as here.
6: Now the shuttle will be taking scientists and engineers, men and women of all races, into space just like the astronaut crew on the Starship Enterprise. So that is why I'm speaking to the whole family of humankind, minorities and women alike. If you qualify and would like to be an astronaut, now is the time. This is your NASA. A space agency embarked on a mission to improve the quality of life on planet Earth right now.
0: And Leonard was very involved and and Dee and believed in it and a lot of these actors. And it'd be nice to see maybe some of the actors from these later Star Treks become more involved as well. Um, because it does matter. I think you know, to a certain extent, I think Kate Mulgrew has been someone who has championed it. But it would be great to see these other shows that have an impact on a younger generation also point to how important the work of NASA is, and to get the new Star Trek fans engaged with the mission.
3: Um, I, I agree with that. You know, I think that um, as we discussed earlier, there there really is this this mutual symbiosis, if you will, between science fiction and science reality. Um, and they support each other. And uh, I think it'd be great if uh, people in the, in the Star Trek franchise uh, were to become um, directly involved or continue to be directly involved in the, in the space program. You know, you mentioned Michelle Nichols, and I, I have to say, you know, who we lost um, fairly recently, um, she made just a tremendous contribution not just to NASA, uh, but to our society. Um, now, there, after the Apollo program, um, NASA's budgets were really slashed, um, and it, it was NASA was struggling to put together a successor uh, to Apollo, which became the space shuttle. Um, but when you look at the Apollo era, um, it was it was in NASA. It was very much a, a male white. Um, activity. Um, The astronauts were selected out of the test pilot school. They were all male, white um, people. The leadership of NASA looked that way. Um, And that was one of the striking contrasts with Star Trek, which was this multiracial, integrated uh, community on the Starship Enterprise. Um, And after Star Trek um, was in syndication, and Nichelle Nichols uh, found herself um, in these um, conventions, uh, you know, realizing that um, the space program didn't. She didn't recognize herself in the space program. She didn't see herself as a black person or as a as a woman. Um, and she was vocal about that, as is her style. And to NASA's credit, uh, the administrator of NASA reached out to her and said, "You've got a good point." You know, what can we do about this? And, and they hired her company uh, and she spent four months uh, putting her whole career on hold, uh, doing astronaut training so she could speak from, uh, from knowledge about what it meant to, to become uh, an astronaut candidate. Um, and then toured the country uh, going to um, civic groups, minority groups, universities, and at the end of that campaign, NASA had a huge number of astronaut applicants who were black, who were minorities. And it, it just, you know, the first class of astronauts that was selected for the shuttle program, um, you know, contained um, three uh, black astronauts, uh, Frederick Gregory, Guy Bluford, Ronald McNair, a Japanese American astronaut, Ellison Onizuka, and and several women, Anna Fisher, I've got the list here, Shannon Lucid, Judith Resnick, Sally Ride, Ray Seddon, Catherine Sullivan, they were all in that first group. And I think that wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for
0: Michelle Nichols. I'm so glad that we, uh, we talked about that because it really is this... I mean, people have mentioned it, but it's such an important part of her contribution to... Um, to the space program and her a legacy, a real meaningful legacy, uh, that she left us, uh, from her time with Star Trek. You know, a lot of times she complained, Oh, I didn't get more to do. Or other people said, you know, she was, uh, uh, you, you didn't get to, to, to really, uh, but she did. And in, in life, she got to do remarkable things. So, uh, it's, it's pretty great. And you know, it was pretty great. This conversation with you, James, was pretty great. So we thank you for, uh, joining us on the podcast. Um, it's, it's always great to talk Star Trek, particularly with somebody as erudite and engaged and uh, passionate about Star Trek so, um, and its real-life implications. So uh, this is uh, illuminating and, and fun and, and much appreciated.
3: Thank you. I love your podcast. Thank you guys for doing it and keep up the good
0: work. Thanks Thank so you. Much. You as well. Great having you. I can't you. wait to see what you bring back from space next. As long as it's not uh, neural parasites that take over uh humanity and make their heads blow up, but that's next generation. Although that so could be kind of cool.
1: Hey, well, well it depends whose heads are blowing first. up. You can try it. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: thank you, Thank Thanks James. You so much. Thank you. Well, we can't beam him out because uh you know he's yeah, not sure. Technology the teleportation doesn't exist. Technology no, because, because
2: exist. NASA has dropped the ball on um, transporter technology that's right they dropped that's the ball I, this he was
0: a fan of tos so i wasn't gonna ask him if it did exist do you think these evil creatures could exist in the transporter beam and right. torment barkley so you know, <laughs> I, I, I thought you i hope know, so I, I figured i'd lay off that i didn't want to get into Katra either talking yeah. about the okay. Katra. you think a Katra could you know we could take somebody's Katra from one body I take another, from one and i think my thoughts put them in on your another? thoughts it's like, what do you think
1: is Star Trek three? Come on, you could be honest. <laughs> you know what kind of jumped out at me. What I kept thinking about as he was talking was, you know, a, a lot of the, the the premise of many of our questions was um, that the the path we took to get here, in terms of the technology that we use to um, explore the uh, the the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, um, that it was it was somehow You know, preordained that, that this was this was the only path. And the thing that's really interesting about you know the the development of this technology is it's not necessarily true. I mean, back in the 1960s, Freeman Dyson, when he was pitching the Orion project. Which was, which, which on paper sounds crazy, but it's actually pretty brilliant. Um, was, this, was this whole plan to use nuclear power, nuclear bombs, uh, right. you know, detonating to, against to uh, pusher a spaceship across the stars? Exactly. And what, uh, what they promised was let's reach Saturn by 1970 right. because the propulsion technology. Uh, would have been um would have been capable of of giving us that and of course um, that was all uh undone by, by the, the, nuclear with the Russians factory. about setting off nukes in space yeah um which as it turns out since there's a lot of nukes get set off in space and thank God otherwise we wouldn't have life on this planet and or, we wouldn't have the villains from the phantom zone exactly or <laughs> you know there's the alternate universe. Where, you know, when the bureaucratic fighting that happened over, like, the Apollo program and the follow-ons for Apollo uh, hadn't lost out, you know, to the teams that were developing the space shuttle, how much farther along we would be instead of screwing around in low Earth orbit uh, with the space shuttle for all this time. I mean, the space shuttle, sure, great achievement didn't need to be like a, but it's a U-Haul. year interregnum. It's, like, a, it's U-Haul. a U-Haul. It's a U-Haul. <laughs> it's a silliness. So the oh. world could have been a very different place. That, you know, and when 2001 was made, we may have actually been closer to the discovery than we were to Hal. Yeah. But now we were way closer to Hal right. than we mm-hmm. were to discovery. And I think that, you know, it's it could have gone a different way. I mean, there's all of these things. I think here all of a sudden I'm just thinking, wow, here are like, you know, shows we should just find people to come in and talk about, like, you know, science to show out of
0: the show. Yeah, we are. Hell yeah. This is a perfect time for me to leave the show. We're going to talk science because you do not (laughs) want me on the show for this. You know, if we're going to stop talking about
1: TV and movies and, 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 and Woody Allen, I'm done. Blue. Well, you did a pretty good Woody <laughs> Allen imitation, though. Um uh, Somewhere in the the middle of the other uh, podcast, I, I will listen
0: to the show because it's uh, it's it's great. I just have nothing to contribute. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I definitely don't want to go to the moon because <laughs> uh, the universe is expanding. <laughs> it's, it's expanding for thousands of years, Um uh, This was a great episode. I really enjoyed this, and there's yeah, no convincing me fun. it wasn't. Yeah, right. Um I got to ask you and this is not and then we'll go this is not the slag on the, on the on the more recent shows at all but why is it that the original star trek seems to have inspired so much love and, and so many people to go into the sciences right and i think to an extent maybe next gen did and certainly voyager in terms of um uh bringing a, a female uh, a voice uh, into the into stem Mm-hmm. It, it was a huge. It was a huge contributor, but it doesn't seem like the new shows uh, that the, the cast are involved in, like uh, the way that the we're in, cast were involved we're in, in different NASA. different
2: times. We're in different times. Our society doesn't give a shit at this point.
1: Well, the context is also different. You have to remember. I mean, Star Trek. Did not. I mean, I was about to say it wasn't created in a vacuum, although it does nothing but fly around in vacuum. Um, it didn't exist in a vacuum. It existed in a world where, you know, you've got JFK, you know, saying, we choose to go to the moon in this decade, not because it is easy, but because they are, high, or whatever the hell it was he was saying. Yeah, yeah, um, and we were That's in the exactly middle. what he said. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> we were in the middle of you know the space program, so Star Trek hit at exactly the right yeah, time yeah. to inspire people and make them feel like, oh, what he's talking about can be con- concrete and real, and I can see it.
0: Well, I, I do think also Star Trek the the original series was about exploration. the The, the galaxy was vast and mysterious. And that has become less of the case as we uh, go to the other shows. in Voyager, which was about exploring the mysterious Delta Quadrant, wasn't that vast, it wasn't that mysterious. Okay, so <laughs> this was great. And the good thing is, uh, if you liked it, we'll be back next week with another show uh, next Thursday, and we hope you'll join us. As always, you can share your thoughts about the episode in Inglorious Trek and Glorious Trek Experts on Instagram, Twitter, and now on threads. Now you can find us on threads because we're not on enough social platforms. If so we keep threading it. the needle. So we're we're multiplying, our, like our chills. They're multiplying the social media, and uh, of course uh, you can see us in uh, Richmond at Galaxy Cup. Co- not Richmond. We will be at Richmond in a year, but <laughs> we will be at Raleigh, Raleigh, North Carolina, where uh, we'll be talking Star Trek once again uh, with with uh, with so many of you, and we hope you'll you'll join us there. And uh, but until then, uh, on behalf of uh, the great Ashley Edward Miller. Garrett Doctorman, myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking through the stars, ingloriously, of course.